Well, good morning. We, uh, this morning, are going to be continuing our study of uh, John's first letter. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there now. You know, as I was prepping uh, for this week's text, I was actually reminded of the movie City Slickers. This is kind of an oldie, I think. I have a little bet going with my wife. How many of you have seen the movie City Slickers? Show of hands. Oh, that's way better than I expected. Okay, that's good. Maybe that means I'm just not as old as I thought. That's, that's good. You know, this movie is about a midlife crisis. It's about a couple of 40-something guys who head down to a dude ranch to do some uh, cattle herding for a couple of weeks. And in one of the scenes, uh, Billy Crystal is riding a horse next to this uh, leathery old cowboy named Curly. And Curly says something like, you city slickers are all the same. You come down here looking for the meaning of life. And I know what the meaning of life is. It's just one thing. Of course, in a dramatic twist of irony, Curly dies before he can tell uh, Billy Crystal what the one thing is. But he wasn't wrong. Curly actually wasn't wrong. There is only one thing that matters. And unlike Curly, the Apostle John told us what it was before he died. He wrote it down for us, and we're going to see it in our text today. There is just one thing that matters, and we're going to ask, what is that one thing, and why is it so important? What is the one thing, and why is it so important? And I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger for just a minute, because I want God's Word to speak to us. So if you have found God's Word, would you stand in honor of it while I read to us from 1 John chapter 2? This is verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So, I think we have a little bit of work to do, actually, to really understand what John is getting at. I think this passage is a little confusing the first time you read it. Uh, And one of the reasons that I think that is he just uses some words I don't use all the time. He uses words like abide and anointing. And then right there in verse 18, he uses the word antichrist, doesn't he? 
And I just don't go around saying the word antichrist all that much. So I think it's worth just a little bit of time knowing what John means here. A lot of us, when we hear that word antichrist, think about the sort of end times when this sort of mysterious figure that's going to come as God comes to end the world and this antichrist is going to oppose God's people. We don't really know a lot about it, to be honest. That's actually not what John is talking about at all here. He might be alluding to that spirit of being against God, but when he uses the word antichrist in this verse, he's just using it in its most basic form. He's saying there are people in your community who are against Christ. They are anti-Christ. And it's really important, I think, for us to start to recognize this in these verses because if you've been reading along in 1 John up to this point, you might have sensed some hints from John that there's a problem in the community going on, that he's writing a letter to address some specific concerns that his friends might have. And it's really in these verses that we start to unpack the sort of context of the letter, the problem that he's addressing. It comes through really clearly, starting in verse 19. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So in other words, there has been a division in the church. There were a group of people who belonged to the community of God in this church, and they have left the church and are now opposing Christ. And we see battle lines being drawn in these first couple of verses. I mean, there are some twists and turns in the language, but we start to see two groups, two separate and really distinct groups being described. You see maybe a lot of you and they language that is playing off of each other, right? In verse 19, it says, they went out from us. And then verse 20, but you... So on the one hand, we have antichrists who are opposing Jesus and who have left the church. And then on the other hand, we have God's people, what John calls anointed, being anointed by the Holy One. And so then, again, we have another word that I just don't use all the time. And so what does the word anointed mean? In this context, the word anointed means to be chosen for something. God chose his people to be his people. And it's actually kind of a play on words. The word anointed means literally to be Christed. To have Christ's identity put on you as you are chosen to be God's people. That's what it means to be anointed. And so we have this really interesting uh, group of people. We have those who are anti-Christ and those who are literally Christed or anointed to be God's people. And the other thing that I think starts to become apparent about these two groups of people is that God's people are marked by the truth. I don't know if you saw that in verse 21. It says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know the truth and because no lie is of the truth. God's people are called by God They are for Christ, and they have the truth. Antichrists are against God and have left the church. That is the showdown that is happening in this letter. And for as much as is not clear, 
in these first couple of verses, the dividing line between these two groups shines through crystal clear. It comes in verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So the line in the sand is the confession that Jesus is the Christ. It is the central teaching of Christianity, and it is centered on the person of Jesus. And what John is saying is if you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, then you are marked by the truth, and you are called to be God's people. You are Christed. And if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, then you do not have the truth. You are a liar. You are an antichrist. This line is very clear. And I think it begs the question, who is Jesus to you? This is the all-important and central, Christian, or central question of Christian faith. Who is Jesus to you? I think it's especially important if you're considering Christianity for the first time or maybe struggling with doubt about Christianity. I think when you come to Christian faith, there are so many things you have to consider. There's so much complexity. There's so much in the Bible to read and understand. There's so many cultural things that you have to wade through to really understand what does it mean to follow Jesus. And friends, the place to start the place to spend your time is by asking yourself the question, who is Jesus to you? And John actually has given us a really clear question, a really clear statement of what it means to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. He's been writing about it for a chapter and a half. So when we come to this point in the letter and he says, he who denies that Jesus is the Son of God is a liar, He's already told us what it means to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. It means some really specific things. It means that Jesus is God. It means that Jesus became a man, became fully human. Take a look just at, at 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands... Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. That which was from the beginning is Jesus, is God. And God was made manifest so you could see him and touch him. The word of life became a man. And Jesus died. He died because of our sin to bear the wrath of God in our place. That's what John calls a propitiation in chapter 2. And he is even now alive, having been risen from the dead, conquering death, and being now an advocate for us at the right hand of the Father. 
What does it mean to confess that Jesus is the Son of God? It means that Jesus is God. He was a man. He really died, and he is now alive. What John is saying is that to be counted among those who have the truth, you have to confess that this Jesus is the Son of God. The Jesus of the Bible is the Son of God. Friends, I think we have to be really careful about this confession. We have to be really careful that we don't add anything to it. It's not ours to add to. And when I say that, you might be thinking about a cult somewhere who says, in order to be a follower of Jesus, you have to believe these things about Jesus, and then you also have to believe uh, that this one prophet is... uh, a new God. Or you might be thinking about something uh, really dangerous and transparent like that. And that's true. We should not add to the word of God. But I actually think there are some subtle ways that we ourselves can be in danger of adding to the confession that Jesus is the Christ. It's a really important question that we ask ourselves. Are we as the church today continuing to hold fast to the standard and the standard alone that Jesus is the Son of God? One of the ways that I think we get in danger of that is when we create additional expectations that become so important to us we start to confuse them with the central message of the gospel. We start to expect of ourselves and of others that to really be a Christian, you have to believe in the gospel plus this other thing. And it's a really dangerous way of thinking because it means our identities start to become tied to that something else and not only and exclusively to the confession that Jesus is the Christ. And ironically, I think these things happen in areas of Christian freedom. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of examples in a minute, but I want to be really clear about what I'm not saying. I'm not saying how you live your life doesn't matter. Obedience matters. How we follow Jesus matters. The Bible teaches us that when we come to confess that Jesus is the Christ, that our hearts will be transformed, and so our lives will reflect that transformation. We'll want to live in a way that honors God. We'll want to be obedient. And when we have these decisions in our lives about how to structure in our lives in a way that reflects the truth of who Jesus is, we should look to the Bible for wisdom in that. The Bible has some authoritative teaching on how we should live. That's not what I'm talking about. Instead, I'm talking about areas of Christian freedom where the Bible allows for more than one way to honor God. And in those moments, when we are seeking earnestly to please God with the way we live our lives, we can develop these additional standards that we then hold ourselves to and judge other people for not living up to. I'm going to give you a couple of examples I'm going to tread very cautiously and I'm not going to give you uh, an exhaustive list here. What I want to do is illustrate the point and then ask you to think about it. 
So one of the ways that I think uh, this can be really problematic is in our parenting. Uh, Parents have to make decisions all the time about how to raise their children in the way of the Lord. And when you make decisions about discipline strategies that other parents don't agree with, you can actually start to hold on too tight to those standards that you set and be really threatened. Have your identity in Christ threatened when people don't agree with your standard. I think schooling is another really important one. The decision you make about whether to send your children to public school or private school or to home school, that's a really important decision. But we have to hold it carefully because sometimes we develop a standard that if people don't live up to this, then they're not really as good of a Christian as I am. And we don't want to create that culture in our church where people feel like they're less than a Christian because they make a different decision about where to school their children. It's creating an additional standard to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and we have to be careful about that. The other one I'll mention is politics. I think, really, throughout history, politics have been confused with what it means to be a Christian. And if politics are really important to you, then this may be something that you struggle with. And so I'll just say, if you're a Democrat, you need to hear that because someone is a Republican doesn't mean they're not a Christian. And if you're a Republican, then you need to hear that just because someone is a Democrat doesn't mean they're not a Christian. When we start to feel that way, it means that we are creating additional standards for what it means to be a believer. And that is dangerous, friends, because then when that thing gets taken away from us, our identity in Jesus falls away. It's dangerous because we judge other people and tell them they're not really as good of Christians as we are. We cannot add anything to the confession that Jesus is the Son of God. And the reality is that all of us have a tendency to do this. And it's going to happen in the areas of your life that are most important to you, and you are going to be the last person to know that you're doing it. Ask your friends. They're going to see it way before you do. Ask them this week. Take them out to lunch. Community group leaders, if you're looking for a question for this week, if you don't know what to ask, ask people this. This is a powerful opportunity to wonder, what is it that rests where your hope really rests? Is it the confession that Jesus is the Son of God? And are you adding anything to it? The other thing I think we need to be really careful about is that just like we can't add anything to the confession that Jesus is the Son of God, so too we cannot take anything away from that confession. I think all of us have probably been accused at some point of being unwelcoming or unaccepting or too harsh or condescending or bigoted because we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And there is a tendency to want to soften some of the message of the gospel in the name of inclusion. There's a tendency to want to round the corners of the edges a little bit to say you could still be a Christian even if you don't proclaim all of these things. And friends, I will tell you that is dangerous. It's dangerous because it's untrue. When you start to deny certain components of who Jesus is, you become like the Antichrists. 
you now are denying that Jesus is the Son of God. And you're doing it to try and love people, but it actually turns out to be not loving because you withhold from them the truth. We have to be very careful not to add anything to the gospel and not to take anything away from the gospel. Now, the last thing I'll say about that is as we're considering it, I think that there, the fact that there is this really well-inscribed uh, line in the sand that divides who is a Christian and who isn't can feel a little uncomfortable for us because we like gray areas. But this isn't a gray area. This line in the sand is a clear dividing line. And it can be hard because it can feel exclusive sometimes. Or it can feel arrogant. Or it can feel like an ultimatum. What I'd say is if you're feeling that way or considering it, remember this. Jesus didn't come to judge the world. He came to save the world. That whoever might believe in him would have eternal life. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This statement that Jesus is the Son of God is simultaneously the most exclusive statement because there is only one way. And the most inclusive statement because that one way is available to anyone who will believe in him. We confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, John gives us a little bit more because I think one of the questions you should be asking yourself is if this standard is worth dividing the church over, why is it so important? What is it about this that is so important? And it starts to come through just in the very next verse, in verse 22 and 23. He says, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. The reason this is so important is because we believe the only way to be in relationship with the Father is through the Son. The only way to come to know God is through Jesus. There's this really great story in John chapter 14, not the letter, but the gospel of John chapter 14. Jesus says something really famous. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And then Philip, one of his disciples, says to him, Jesus, show us the Father. Show us God. He, he gets how important that is, how central to our existence as humans it is to want to be in relationship with God. He says, show us God and that will be enough. And Jesus says, Philip, how long have you known me? When you know me, you know the Father. Because I and the Father are one. We believe that this is so important because the only way to come to know your Father is to come to know Jesus. And this, friends, is the one thing. You've been waiting 25 minutes for it. The one thing. 
is that the only way to know the Father is to know Jesus. I don't think that's an understatement. I think it's the central teaching of the Bible. I think nothing else matters, really. We were made in God's image to be in relationship with him. We walked in the garden with him. And the whole Old Testament is the story of God's people failing over and over and over again to be in relationship with God because of our sin. We turn our own way. We exchange his glory for our glory. But God in his great mercy sends his son Jesus to die for you that we might come to know the Father and again be in relationship with him. It's the central teaching of the Bible. It's the most important thing you are ever going to hear. Now, because it's the central teaching of the Bible, there are uh, more than a few applications that we could talk about because it really should shape all of our lives. But the one that I think comes through most clearly in this passage has everything to do with the context. Remember that the gospel is under attack. People are questioning the truth of the gospel, and so I think the question is, how do we represent the truth of who Jesus is to people who don't believe in him? How do we represent the truth of who Jesus is to people who are questioning that or hostile to it? Has everything with how we share the gospel. I mean, we send people all over the world to tell people that Jesus is the only way to know your father. If that weren't true, we wouldn't send people to Turkey and the West Bank and Bali where it's hard to speak the language, where you can't even go to the grocery store and find anything to eat. We send people all over the world because this truth is the central truth. It's the one thing. But it's so much more than the imperative for missions. It has to do with the content of what we say. When we talk to people about what it means to be a Christian, friends, we need to talk about Jesus. We need to tell them that Jesus is the only way to the Father. I think it actually can be a little intimidating to do that because you can feel like you're going to be judged for it. You can feel like you're going to be persecuted for it. In fact, Jesus died because that's the claim that he was making. But friends, we cannot withhold that from people because it's the truth. So my encouragement to you, whether you are headed overseas on a mission trip, whether you are evangelizing to people from different cultures here who don't know Jesus, or whether you're sitting in a coffee shop talking to a friend from work, practice talking about Jesus. Practice explaining why Jesus is central to your faith, why he is the linchpin of Christianity. I think it's so easy to talk about our faith and just mention our relationship to God. It feels a little easier to me to do that. But it misses the point. So practice. Talk about who Jesus is to you. What does he mean to your faith? What does he mean to Christianity? Why is he the central reality of Christianity, of the Bible? And the answer is, because he's the only way to get to heaven. Now, 
We come to the last part of our passage today. It starts in verse 24. John says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And there we go again with a word that I don't really connect with immediately. Abide. He says it three times in that verse. He actually says it a couple of times more in the following verses. He's saying to his friends, abide. Hmm. That's a verb. Uh, I know what it means to walk. I know what it means to run. I know what it means to sit. I know what it means to stand. I know what it means to swim. I even know what it means to trust. But what does it mean to abide? The reason this word is a difficult word to get our mind around is because it's a word that is meant to describe a relationship. It's meant to describe an interaction between Jesus and us. Oh, and incidentally, it's also the word that describes the relationship between Jesus and the Father. So we're trying to get our mind around a single word that captures how Jesus relates to the Father and how we relate to Jesus and how that's the same thing. And he gives us one word to figure it out. Just try and imagine coming up with a word that defines any other relationship in your life. Like think about your spouse, how you relate to them, or your sibling, or your friend. Could you do it in one word? It's hard. The good news is that Jesus helps us out here. And when you read the Bible, this word abide actually comes up a lot more than you realize when you start to look for it. So let me try and give you my best attempt at a definition for this, recognizing there's going to be some mystery here. Abide, I think, really has three parts to it. There's a receiving part to abiding. There's an acting part to abiding, and there's a lasting part to abiding. Receiving, acting, lasting. Three verbs to try and explain one. I'm already in trouble, right? The receiving part of abiding is that we receive our identity from Christ. Jesus explains this to us in John's gospel again. He, he uses the imagery of a, a branches and a vine. He says, Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches, abide in me. So there's a sense in which our lifeblood, our identity, comes from who Jesus is. Just like the sap flows from the vine into the branches to give it life, so too does who Jesus is flow through us to give us new life. We take our identity from Christ. There's also a sense in which we receive that through union with him. The idea of abiding really comes from the idea that we have unity with Christ. And so his identity becomes our identity when we abide in him. The second part of it is the acting part. There's a part that we do too in this relationship. We live out our life in such a way as to welcome that identity into all aspects of our life. So there's no longer a bill on Sunday mornings and a bill in the rest of the week, right? There's only one me. There's only one you when you abide in Christ. 
That is the you that's defined by who Jesus is in your life. And you want to organize your life. You want to structure your life in such a way to welcome that identity into all aspects of it, to let it permeate everything you do. And then the third part of this word is there's a lasting or an ongoing nature to the way that we abide. One author put it this way. Having begun in Christ, we remain in Christ, continuing to draw our life from him and maturing in grace. Having begun in Christ, we remain in Christ. And we continue to draw our life from him, maturing in grace. That's what it means to abide. Now, the interesting thing about this is John actually isn't giving us a definition here. He just assumes that we know what he's going to mean. So it's not actually the most interesting question to ask of this text. You just have to do some work to understand it. I think the much more interesting thing is why does he tell his friends to abide? Do you feel like it's a little hard to connect the dots? He's been talking about this church split, about the antichrists, about how important it is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he's the only way to the Father. And then he says, so abide in what you've heard. It takes a minute to connect that dot, but when we do, I think we're going to find it remarkably encouraging. Think for a moment what it must be like to be this church. If you've gone through a church split, you know what it's like. It's incredibly disorienting to your faith. These people who you loved, who were sitting next to you in your worship services, they leave. And they say, we don't believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life anymore. We don't confess that Jesus is the Son of God anymore. They must have been reeling with uncertainty. They must have been feeling like their identity was being questioned. John says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, in verse 26. What he's saying is, don't be deceived. He says a little earlier, I write these things to you because you know the truth. What he's saying is, trust in who you are. He's saying, send your roots down deep into the person of Jesus, into your identity as Jesus. And then when the winds of deception come your way, when the winds of every new doctrine come your way, you won't be blown over. He's saying, don't let these people tell you who you are. Remember who you are. You are in Christ. And that relationship with him will go on and on and on. And it goes all the way to eternal life, he says. This is the promise. When you abide in Jesus, the Father abides in you. And Jesus abides in you. And you will have eternal life. That's why he says abide. I think it's so encouraging to them. But then I think the question is, why is it so encouraging to us? And I think all of us know what it's like to have the gospel questioned in our lives. Maybe you've been a part of a church split and so know what this is like. Or maybe you have a family member who 
has broken off a relationship with you because of what you believe. Or maybe you have a coworker who thinks you're silly or worse, bigoted because you believe Jesus is the Son of God. Or maybe the attack doesn't come from the outside. Maybe it comes from the inside and you have doubt over who Jesus is in your life. We know what it's like to have the truth of who Jesus is questioned in our minds and in our hearts. And the encouragement that John gives us here is abide. Know who you are. Don't let those things define you. Remember, you are a child of God. Remember, your identity is in Christ. He is your shepherd. You are his sheep. Trust in who he is. Hold fast. Stand your ground where your hope is. Don't give in. You know, in the beginning of our service, we read from the Apostles' Creed. I'm just going to quote some of it for you now as we end. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Virgin, conceived by the Holy Ghost, sorry, is born of the Virgin Mary. I believe that he suffered under Pontius Pilate and that he was crucified. I believe that Jesus died. And I believe on the third day he rose again and sits now at the right hand of the Father, advocating for us. I believe in the forgiveness of sins and I believe in the life everlasting. Jesus said to his disciples, Who do people say that I am? I said, Some say John the Baptist, some say the prophet Elijah. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? Will you pray with me? Father, we confess this morning that you are the Son of God, that you have sent your Son, Jesus, to us, and we proclaim that he is the Son of God, the Christ. Help us to believe that, we pray. Help us to trust and rest in our identity that comes through Jesus. It is so hard to walk in this life when we are constantly under attack. We're so thankful that you promise that it's not always going to be this way, that you promise you're going to be with us until it ends. So help us in our unbelief, Father. We believe. It's in your name we pray. Amen.